0: Earthlife Africa is a non-profit organization founded in Johannesburg, South Africa in 1988. Earthlife Africa works to encourage individuals, businesses, and industries to protect our planet's natural resources and combat climate change while seeking better lives for community members.
1: Bongui Matsuwa, Tabo Sebeko, Urik Earthlife Africa, welcome to the One Planet podcast.
2: Thank you very much.
1: Thank you very much. Very um, pleased to be here. Earth Life Africa, it's uh, going for over 30 years?
2: Yes, yes. Um, yeah, we've, we've gone over 30 years. For the past 30 years, I think Earth Life Africa was formed uh, in the late uh, 80s, 1980s, by a group of uh, student activists um, forming an organization in response to environmental injustice issues which uh, they encountered at that time, and part of those issues were more related to uh, radioactive waste as well as uh, energy-related issues which they were encountering, particularly in local communities in the Johannesburg area and Devon.
0: Tabo Sebeko is an artist and activist with 20 years of experience working within various communities in South Africa. As a coal campaigner, he works with coal-affected communities to discourage the further development of new coal projects while showcasing the benefit of renewable energy technologies. Tell us a little bit about
1: the evolution of earth life
2: well there has been a number of uh, changes in the organization uh, to start with uh, the founders of the organization have moved on moved on in a way that uh, you know uh, they've branched out to other uh, environmental justice in i mean uh, justice program but um, uh, they're still with us uh, they still provide a lot of uh, you know information to the organization even though they are not with us in terms of operations, uh, day-to-day operations of the organization, but they still provide a lot of uh, uh, technical information to get the organization going. So the AdLife the Africa evolved from, you know, from generation to generation, you know. Um, I mean, for the past uh, almost 20 20 years, basically, the organization was more of an office-based uh, kind of an organization with a very few uh, outreach uh, programs where visiting, uh, you know, affected communities. But for the past 15 years, the organization evolved. There's a, there are a lot of changes where now there's a human face of the organization. So there has been a lot of involvement happening um, in the organization. Generation to generation, they join and they leave and they leave it to the others. It's, it's more like activists passing a baton on to, to other activists to move on with the organization. So that's the, that's the greatest part which I actually see and also being privileged to form part of the organization.
1: And you're involved, uh, just to outline your different activities, uh, you're involved with a lot of the education outreach, which is so important. Just tell me a little bit more, and also Bongiwe, so I have a, we have an idea of how you complement each other.
2: Yeah, well, maybe just to quickly jump on that. I think the educational aspect of the organization is that for many years, if um, people, more especially affected communities on the ground, they are left behind in terms of uh, decision-making processes, uh, whereby uh, you know important issues which really affect them on a daily basis don't have they don't actually been given a space where they are able to make a meaningful contribution to those processes. And half of the time, you find that a lot of communities are not aware, uh, uh, and some even though they are aware, but uh, some don't have an idea how to begin to engage with such issues so our intervention as an organization is to bridge the missing link between government and communities so in for us to bridge that link is to start by um, uh, you know i mean working very close with communities so that uh, when it comes to a time for them to participate in decision making processes they are also where, uh, better positioned, well informed to be able to make meaningful contribution to those processes. so our intervention is basically more of building capacity so that communities are also be able to and to, to, to voice out their concerns and so that government can can actually hear them and and, and and actually adhere to all the requests and all the demands which communities are looking for in order to to mitigate climate change.
3: Um, can I just then jump in? Um, so my role at Earth Life Africa is I'm the researcher, um, and also I do a little bit of research in policy work. So um, as taba has already mentioned, a lot of the work that we do is to really provide capacity for community-based organizations um, so that they are able to uh, make informed decisions. So any sort of new updates, uh, whether it be on policy that the government comes out with, um, we typically will provide that information um, so that uh, there is some sort of type of disclosure. And it's put in more uh, simple language where people can uh, try and better understand and what many of these changes that frequently occur, but aren't often communicated to communities are. So that would be my main responsibility, but also I'm responsible for um also crafting the 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 other sort of type of uh, information with regards to our newsletter, which is also a very important uh, uh document in terms of at least just relaying the more day-to-day information, and we have uh different people in, in the organization who also write pieces um in that newsletter that um are eventually sent to communities. So that would, yeah, that would be my, my role.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Bongiwe Matsoa currently works at Earthlife Africa as a research and energy policy officer. She has more than five years of experience in the sustainability sector, and she has gained broad experience in sustainable development, climate change, and energy policy.
1: Well, also education, outreach, and another element of that. What do you find are some misconceptions or things that people that perhaps don't understand that they would need to understand to either, you know, help bring about policy change or to empower themselves to, you know, influence the, the government and corporations? I mean, what are some of those very Straightforward, simple things that you find that that you need to be communicated, and how do you do that?
2: Yeah, I think uh, one of the misconceptions that we've observed through working with communities uh, is that a lot of people still believe that anything that has got to do with policies, it's something which is actually developed at the upper level, meaning that it's something which government must come up with and 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 just introduce. To the communities, and that is implemented. You know, so that's not the case. Basically, um, policies are actually should be a bottom-up approach, whereby uh, each and every member of the community is entitled to actually make a, a contribution to the policies, which will be everyone will be abided to. You know, because if it's something that comes from by only government and it's been just uh, introduced to communities to implement nobody will actually adhere to the to the policy because it's something that is strange you know it's, nobody is aware about it and, and 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 suddenly people are forced to actually but if it's something which is collectively developed by communities in inclusive of government and it's something which uh, everyone it's a collective agreement you know and everyone is very easy for all of us to actually adhere to 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 the intricacies of the policy so that is one of the misconceptions so one of the, the our interventions in that space is to actually also uh, understand what the, the current available policies which are there and to kind of uh, break them down and simplify them in a, in a way that communities will also will, will be able to interact because that's one of the biggest gaps you know as you as you may be aware that policies are actually they've got a tendency of being crafted using you know academic jargons and language which uh, you know ordinary member of of the community on the street will, will actually have difficulties of, of of understanding and that actually compromises the interest of communities you know communities would like to engage within something which speaks their language you know as something that is very easy to relate to you know so currently that's one of the gaps that we as an organization are actually tapping into that space you know um to kind of also assist communities through our educational programs and training so that communities are able to um, I mean to interpret the policies and also we want to also take it to your point that policies also form part of the everyday uh, conversations that communities have you know like the high electricity bill but the issue of policy somewhere somehow should also be featured in the discussion you know it should not be something which is untouchable something that only government is entitled to speak to you know and members of the community can engage because of uh the superficial language that is used so i think that's that's basically our intervention that's
3: my submission thank you yes i just uh want to just back up what taba said and say that um typically also with the education that we uh, assist communities with, um, that sort of type of knowledge they can also then use, especially at public hearings that often take place when there are big policy changes. So instead of an organization like Earth South Africa speaking on behalf of communities, the the whole point or work that we do is for communities to actually speak on their own behalf. So we just merely provide them with the information uh, and break it down, as Tapo said, um, in a way that is easily comprehensible to anyone. So that is uh one of the key things with the public hearings as well. Thank you.
1: And now it's to, I mean, I don't sure if I know all the statistics for South Africa, but uh, you know, I was just reading a recent statistics, I'm sure you've read them too. On they estimate 8.7. Million people died in 2018 due to fossil fuel emissions. I mean, what are those, you know, real life, observable things that you're seeing on the ground and that helps energize people around, uh, you know, a movement towards green energy and all this um, uh, environmental justice?
2: The 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 issues of energy. I mean, basically the, the climate change catastrophe uh, that we facing. Uh, it's it's starting to be to be more visible. It's no longer something which, uh, you know, when it's only people can only see it on TV screens. You know, um, it's something that every now and then we see in our neighborhood countries like uh, Zimbabwe, uh, Mozambique, which is, uh, you know, our neighbor countries. You know, so the power utility and its power, its its coal-fired power stations basically, um, it's actually causing a lot of mess, and it's something which a lot of people see. You know, uh, the World Health Organization, a couple of years ago, if I'm not mistaken, about two years ago, they released uh, a, a health report uh, stating that more than 3,000 uh, people are dying due to um, the pollution which comes from, from the coal-fired power stations uh, of one of our uh, power utility, which is ESCOM. You know, so... And that on its own, um, there are a lot of evidence, you know, in, in our local communities, in the areas where we've got a footprint, where we currently mobilizing uh, against expansion of coal-fired power stations. A lot of people are sick and they die due to asthma and, and respiratory-related complications, you know, due to the pollution that comes from the power stations, you know. That is actually evidenced. Um, if you go to local townships four decades ago or three decades ago... Uh, local uh, pharmacies in, I mean, there, there were no pharmacies in our local townships, but now recently, the pharmacies uh, companies or shops are actually expanding and, and they're making a lot of great revenue because a lot of people are sick and, and all that is due, is related to also uh, climate change, you know, it's not only uh, old age, like uh, you know, <laughs> we, we, we used to uh, see a lot of elderly people getting sick you know even younger the younger generation now is sick and they don't know what is what is what is currently happening with them is because of the climate uh, catastrophe you know the climate, climate catastrophe is not is not only major events you know it's, it's it can be very simple things like a uh, global warming where you know rain is not actually raining and it affects the crops you know the ozone uh, which comes from the power stations it really affects the crops and the crops it's something that we cook and we eat and and that actually tends to be something else in, in in the human body digestive system or system so it's very broad you know so but but a lot of people are now beginning to 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 to, to see that uh, they are sick not because of poor healthy lifestyle but they are sick because of the activities which are perpetuated due to the to the pollution Uh, that is actually uh, produced especially from the power stations and the coal.
1: And Ulrich, who joined us a bit late, uh, you're speaking about um, energy sources, and you focus on um, anti-nuclear energy campaigns. You should tell us a little bit about that.
4: Um, Good evening, everyone. Um, Yes, with regards to the anti-nuclear energy campaign, um, it is one of the stuff that is. Um, it can be difficult at, at times because of the technical nature of nuclear energy. As such, when it, when it comes to um, bringing it out into the field, so that people understand more or less um, what is going on within these um, within with nuclear energy reactors. So, um, and also the com- the complex aspects of it, whereby. Um, there are positive attributes to nuclear technology, like your uh, nuclear radioisotopes for cancer treatment. So, we also have to make people aware of um, the positive aspects of nuclear technology. But, nuclear energy in it of itself is something that is fairly complex, but is something that is easily opposed uh, from a grassroots level, a community side. As soon as you get them to understand the gist of it and uh, more or less how the process works and how they're going to be affected. I think the main issue with um, nuclear energy and the anti-nuclear energy campaign Is making something that is very complex, uh, relatable to people so that people can actually voice out their own opinions from a more informed standpoint.
0: Jorik Steenkamp has been a vocal and dynamic environmental youth and cultural activist for the past 15 years. York joined Earthlife Africa in 2016 and is currently an outreach and education officer focusing on anti-nuclear energy advocacy, as well as youth and climate change campaigns and mobilization. Yes, I mean, I live in
1: France, and so, you know, we're... France, of course, has its its presence in South Africa, but yes, of course, we have a rely quite a bit on nuclear energy. And you know, I'm wondering in terms of what you know the the move towards um, greener sources of locally distributed energy. What are some of those? programs that earth life africa is getting behind and and i just want to explain this is uh this is a podcast so people can't see but uh ulrich now has talking about you know being in touch with nature now has a bird perched on his shoulder which i really appreciate what is your bird's name
4: <laughs> uh well my bird is barrett she's um 10 months old now
1: Well, I I think that that's lovely. That's the first time I've I've been doing an an interview and just a kind of wildlife just came into the conversation like that, so I I love it. But yeah, just tell us also about, and this is for for everyone, you know, because we want to understand how um, Earth Life Africa, what programs you're promoting towards that movement towards green energy.
4: Well, when it comes to renewable energy, it is something that um, the 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 programs that that we are operating is um, also showing people the vast abundance of um, renewable sources that we do have locally, and that we ought to utilize because it is something that we have in excess of, and we're not utilizing that we we are opting for older energy sources, more polluted energy sources instead of
2: that, which we have in abundance. Yeah, maybe just to also add, uh, I think uh, as you may be aware that the African continent, basically it's blessed with sun, you know, Uh, South Africa has never been, we've never been disappointed by sun, you know, sun is always with us, always available. And, um, And also the wind, uh, um, and, and it's, it's also something which is also available so in the areas where we have a footprint like the your north Johannesburg uh, which is uh, Limpopo and the Eastern Cape you know, there, there's always a potential for sun and wind um, so we're promoting the renewable energy sources as something which is available and something that can actually be cost effective for our communities because a lot of I mean if you can see the stats uh, a lot of people are unemployed and it's even worse now because of the outbreak of the COVID-19 and the national lockdown and a lot of people lost the jobs you know so people can't afford to pay for for electricity and the worst part is that also the tariff hikes from the power utility are actually pushing people to a tight corner you know where a lot of people can't really afford to pay for power anymore so people are actually desperately looking for a nearest island that they can jump to, you know, something, I mean, uh, they're looking for a switch off, an alternative, basically. So the renewable energy technology, it's something which our government is very lax, you know, to promote and, and to actually roll out in a lot of our communities, you know. So as you know, that our government is actually also rolling out the, the program, there's a program called RTP, which is a reconstruction development program, whereby uh, that in that program, they're building houses for their underprivileged communities. So with that program, handing over of those houses, we feel that at least one house should have at least a solar panel or an element of a renewable energy technology somewhere, somehow, you know, so that to assist that member, uh, that household to actually save or to, you know, to save the little income that they have. Instead of taking everything and just putting it and paying uh, our power utility, so um, that's that's one of the reasons. And also we also we know that this one is also one of the uh, the methane gas is also one of the greenhouse gas, you know. But if it's quickly banned and then uh, it actually eradicates that uh, methane gas, you know, reality the use of the biogas digester. There's a lot of uh, uh, food waste that is actually, that lands up in our landfill sites. And landfill sites, as the government's report, is that uh, we are running out of space, you know, to actually only dump food and, and waste. So in a broader picture, it's more of uh, encouraging to, uh, you know, the whole concept of recycling and reusing, uh, the reuse of our resources, mm, uh, uh, as well as uh, your, your food waste. Can actually be, be be taken to a biogas digester, and it produces methane, and that methane can be used for heating and for lighting. You know, to a certain extent. You know, so that's also that's one of them. Uh, I mean, we we actually going along those lines. You know, uh, but not only just introducing the renewable energy technology to our communities, we want also communities to have a sense of ownership of these programs, like uh, we're promoting what we call a socially owned renewable energy uh, program where members of the communities themselves are actually in charge of generating their own power, you know, their own energy, you know, so that um, if anything happens, they are there by themselves to, be, to actually vitalize the, the technology instead of waiting for private companies to come and do it for them and, and, and money actually or resources are actually being taken away from that community. You know? So that's bas- it's, it's basically promoting the, the, the concept, but also uh, keeping in mind that resources also should be circulating uh, within the very same communities that are actually uh, running that particular program.
3: Yes, but um, this is not uh, in particular something that Earth Life Africa is doing, but I just wanted to maybe also detail also what's happening at policy level. Um, uh, last year, we also had a, um, some new policy changes that uh, government came through with that actually state at the moment that local municipalities, local government, are now able to generate um, as well as procure their own energy. So this whole aspect that... Um, Uh, local government um, can procure their own energy also perhaps also means that communities would be able to have a share um, in that sort of type of generation that's taking place Um, this is um, yes this whole idea of community-owned renewable energy is really of great importance and you know there is There are also organizations uh, such as SALGA, which is uh, the South South African Local Government Association, which is also supposed to be assisting municipalities to come up with plans on how to bring communities onto the grid and sort of create um, uh, new sort of type of programs that will allow municipalities to still own revenue or still have revenue from the sale of electricity, whilst at the same time allowing new entrants uh, such as communities. And what's also important is that it's not just, um, we're not just talking about just solar PV, we're also thinking about utility uh, scale types of renewable energy. But that will perhaps take a much longer time for communities to really get into because there is the issue of funding. And it's generally accepted that funding such projects for for communities is a lot riskier. So there, there is a lot of work that needs to be done around that aspect. But I also want to also say that when you also look at South Africa's current electricity situation, um, we also have an electricity crisis where currently our current supply does not meet uh, the country's demand. And so With knowledge of this, uh, the government knows that it must procure new capacity very soon, um, but it's also known that the most reasonable place where this capacity can possibly come is from renewable energy sources. Um, And we're not just talking about just utility scale, but even some of the most practical and most uh, feasible options, yeah, and affordable options would be those such as rooftop solar. And this is where communities could potentially play a significant role. So these are things that uh, Earth Life Africa is supporting um, and it's also important to understand those dynamics because there are quite a few dynamics, uh, both both economical and political um, that are affecting how everything is currently progressing or how should I say evolving,
1: yes um,
3: at the moment.
1: This is, this is very interesting and i love to go into the specifics of it because i and we're all seeing uh i think we all want to have that move but what is the cost and how can it be done most efficiently what are like the costs involved with maybe doing collective programs with the rooftop solar you know how can that be enabled or even if it has to be done in partnership with some larger um, maybe not energy companies but even just providing the infrastructure in terms of like the manufacturing to make sure those models are efficient and then it would enable the rooftop solar or other local solutions.
3: Okay, um, I'm aware of um, the, the organization that I told you about, Salga, uh, they're the ones who predominantly are working with uh, with government, local government, on how to actually make this affordable and who actually needs to come in. Um, Ideally, I think uh, local government should be the one to help even subsidize or even if it's national government, um, subsidize these sort of type of programs. It's absolutely important, but I think there must be some form of commitment to the fact that um, uh, this is Sort of the avenue that they want to consider but as i mentioned a lot of the municipalities local government make a lot of their revenue which is not even ring-fenced to just that department but um the the local government is de- dependent on revenues from the electricity sector to actually function as a whole so I think there are a lot of fears that bringing in new players into the electricity market will essentially um, make them lose out. So I I, I do believe that even though there is an opportunity here, um, there's much reluctancy because of the fact that um, there's also lots
4: for for people to lose. Now, I just wanted to add (coughs) pardon, that even on a large scale um, policy level, the reluctance of um, introducing renewable energy technologies is clear cut. When we look at uh, major energy policies like our integrated energy plan or our integrated resource plan that that has a scope up until 2030, or but it gets renewed every now and then. um, What tends to happen is that there's lots lots of um, Dependent still on on coal-based electricity, and then what is now being promoted as an alternative, which is something that is not um, financially plausible at this stage for our country, is is nuclear energy. With regards to um, policy level and renewable energy sources, from a planning perspective for the country, you see that within the policies and with the plans and all of that, that there's a lot of resistance towards um, renewable energy technologies as opposed to coal-fired power stations, which is uh, very much nonsensical. Yeah, in in terms of finances, um, there's literally um, an obvious positive side of of installing renewable energy technologies versus um, coal-fired power stations or nuclear energy power stations and what is also very sad is the fact that as a country we were the first, we were leaders in lots of different renewable energy technologies especially with um, concentrated solar power um, our country had a high ranking with regards to the not just the feasibility of it but also with the science involved And due to the lack of of interest and um, push from government, that is basically being subsided. And the the most obvious reason that government and the policy decision-making as frugal as finances, whereby at the same time they're complaining that this renewable energy technology that can actually provide baseload energy, meaning we will not be having our load shedding issues that... um, probably about to face anytime soon. We are opting for stuff that is more expensive and that has a
0: very negative impact on both the environment and the local communities around us. My name is Corey Donnelly, a junior at American University in Washington DC, majoring in film and media arts with a minor in international studies. I'm currently an associate sustainability podcaster for the Creative Processes One Planet podcast. My day-to-day life is spent as an environmental and wildlife activist in which I use my passion for photography, filmmaking, and art to advocate for environmental justice and change, much like Tabo Speko, who uses his art to promote environmental advocacy throughout South Africa. The work that Earth Life Africa carries out resonates with me as I truly live by the motto, What We Save, Saves Us. Earth Life Africa certainly works through the same ideal that only by saving our planet can we save ourselves. In turn, they use this mentality to not only energize local communities about the looming devastations of climate change, but most importantly Earthlife Africa empowers these communities through outreach education. I find it extremely prevalent when Thabo and Bongiwe elaborate on the misconception that environmental policy is something that stops at the upper level of governments, leaving the people with little to no say about the environmental activities that will undoubtedly affect their daily lives. They go on to reveal that this is in fact far from the truth, and citizens can actually make a widespread difference in local environmental policies. And as Jurek states, it is a matter of making a complex concept understandable to people who may be unfamiliar with it. I applaud Earth Life Africa for this aspect of their educational work, as it is imperative that communities understand the logistics of environmental policy if they strive to see a difference in the way that their environment is governed. And now, back to the interview with Earthlife Africa's Tabo Sebeko, Bungiwe Matsowa, Yorik Steenkamp, and Mia Fung.
1: It's so sad to to know that you were that South Africa was really at the vanguard of some of these uh, technologies, and obviously also with the natural resource the wealth of natural resources and and and, and potential solar energy, and the, to see it squandered, you know, uh, in, in that way. It's it's just really sad. What kind of progress has Earth Life Africa made in terms of establishing um, connections on the governmental level to enact this change because obviously there, there are some members who are of government who are reluctant but there, there are others that you're getting through to and, and what are some of those success stories?
4: Um, in terms of success stories with regards to gov- government engagement, the biggest success story really is not um, having the buy-in of government, but um, at the way things have been going recently, and I, and I believe my comrade Thabo would um, expand a lot more, is the fact that um, we basically had to go to court in order to enforce not just the will of the people, but just fair and basic constitutional um, principles with regards to... Um, energy and climate change issues both um, relating to the energy sector. So sometimes there is there is victories, but it's victories that was literally fought at court level, um, either high court or, so, or something like that. So sometimes you have the buy-in of individuals within the department, but the department in and it of itself has mandates coming from the minister or higher up to not enforce what that said individual is, is, is promoting, but they have to bow to the policies and procedures of the department or the ministerial commission that they find themselves in.
2: Yeah, I think as, as Ulrich said that we, um, we had to actually, it took us to take government to court using existing policies to actually stall some of the, of the uh, proposed projects. But also, um, we also currently having um, a renewable energy pilot project, which is actually running in four schools in Gauteng, where we trying to you know, walk the talk and demonstrate the socially owned renewable energy program. And we are starting to see some response because the, when we started the program, one of our ultimate objectives was to actually demonstrate the, uh, using the program, uh, using it as a, as a showcase, you know, to convince government to say renewable energy technology does work and it's got uh, certain benefits, you know. So we're starting to see, you know, governmental officials coming from other provinces to visit the projects, you know, wanting to learn how to roll out, roll such program into their own municipalities, and which is something very, very much positive for us, because before we started with the program or before we established the program, we, only, we were always confronted by this question to say, you know, you say renewable energy works, you know, but show us or tell us where we can go and visit to see what you're talking about. So that program is also motivated from that narrative, you know, and from that question to say we probably also, you know, perhaps have to establish something of that magnitude uh, and, and for, for us to use it as a practical example, you know, for for government and to actually learn and see uh, what we are talking about to be able to implement it, you know. So, but in most cases, there's a lot of resistance from, from government because as you all know, uh, corruption also has actually taken over, people's you know uh, humility and mentality you know everything that people do lately more especially in some of our governmental institutions people they always think about uh, their pockets rather than thinking about the future of of our generation you know and and in our lives you know so and uh, and the energy sector is one of the sectors which taken for an advantage uh, for such practices where you find that government can simply, uh, like the Department of, let me not generalize and say government, let me say the Department of Energy, they they can simply uh, provide licenses for for a coal mine to operate in an area where there is no water at all. Or they can just provide operational license in an area which has already got is surrounded by a lot of coal mines you know and we all know where there's a where there's a coal mine what is actually happening there there's a lot of digging and and most of these companies they simply dig and dig coal and then after that they, they vanish and disappear and leave uh, those mines unattended uh, and, and 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 that actually causes a lot of also social problems for local communities living in that space so in, in, in most cases, we end up taking it to court because we, we believe that what we're advocating for is actually correct.
1: Well, it's certainly a very beautiful and a good and necessary fight. But you know why, why, why did you become an environmentalist? What is you know, those are the, the negative problems that South Africa and were' dealing with around the world. but you know, what are some memories you have of South Africa and the natural world? Uh, that you love, or that you see vanishing and you want to preserve for future generations?
4: Yes, if I can jump in, because ESCOM just announced recently about their load shedding. It's now in the stage three, Comrade, if you're not aware. No, what I love about being an environmentalist and why I became one is I love animals and I love just being out in nature. I'm, I'm one that loves hiking and I'm also very um, involved in cultural activities. And in Africa, when it comes to cultural activities, it's not, um, there's no point where nature isn't part of it. So fighting for nature is also fighting for the cultures of our country and also fighting for the animals and the beautiful scenery that, that we love. So, and the memory form for me, if I'm just reading your text correctly, my favorite memories with regards to nature is me just walking up with my with my grandmother and just getting honey bush tea just on our way between our house and my granny's my granny's place. We uh, we used to have a lot of abundance with all of our medicinal herbs and stuff, but due to climate change and um, human influence, all all of that bounty of nature is um, dwindling, and I would be. I would be very much angry with myself if I died and I didn't do my best to fight for, for the restoration of, of life of this planet, because you only have one and you're supposed to love it. <laughs> that's,
1: that's very beautiful. You can see the connection very, very strong, and uh, I want, I mean, I guess you still are lot of power, so you're still connected, but I want to make sure that we got that in. Um, and. Uh, uh, Tabo and uh, Bongiwe, you too. Why? I mean, why? Why become an environmentalist? What m- moved you about this world, and do you want to preserve it?
2: Immediately after I, you know, uh, I left high school. Um, I was actually pursuing uh, my art career because, you know, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a visual artist. But after attending one of the community workshop which was organized by uh, one of our uh, NGOs uh, that actually caught a fire on me because my artworks were were mainly about collecting uh, usable waste material like a domestic waste material and my artworks were was were mainly creating something out of out of that you know making art out of waste it's a program which I, I started so but attending that 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 uh, workshop actually that was my turnaround because they actually spoke exactly about, I mean, the things which I was unwittingly doing, you know, but not aware that by going out and collecting usable waste material, it was actually cleaning the environment, you know, and creating art, was something that is something that is close to my heart. So since then, I never looked back, and 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 I started uh, uh, following the environmental, you know, issues and up until I realized that I was actually, we were surrounded by a lot of environmental injustices, you know, and then I started following that. So for me being part of the environmental movement, it makes me feel like a better person. It makes me feel like uh, uh, there is something which I'm, I'm living for, you know, to save the nature, something which cannot speak for itself, you know, uh, even though there's a lot of retaliation that we see, you know, from the mother earth you know, uh, lately, you know, the climate change, climate change catastrophe that we're experiencing. But uh, I, 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 what I'm saying that the spark was actually started by that workshop. And, 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 and for me, uh, it's something which, which troubled me for, for so many years uh, because I didn't want to leave my artwork. But at the same time, I wanted to be an activist. Uh, I wanted to do something about the environment. And and that program making out to of waste is something that also brought me even closer to environmental uh, programs. I started by before I pursued a, in an environmental career, I started by doing action programs in our communities. It gave me a direction because it was very easy for me to choose a career moving forward. And then I started training and going for for, for, for courses uh, on environmental management. So, but then um, which we are currently at now seeing what is actually happening in our communities it's something that also uh, is an energizer for me you know every time uh, I, I I look at the images from my phone and seeing what is happening in our communities it makes me it gives me energy to actually do more for our communities and do more to push back code so I think that's that's in the short of it that's all I can say for now.
1: Well, we'd love to, I mean, you know, this is our environmental podcast, but the greater part of creative process is, of course, celebrating artists. So we'd love to publish your work. In fact, the student curator who will be anchoring this, who is Michelle, who's I'm on her Zoom. um, She's also, you know, the arts is a big part of it. And I'm an artist. So I I understand that being torn between doing personal work, you know, because that's that's a real choice. Do you continue to do a work that is personal to you, but maybe isn't for the greater community necessarily, and then, or using the time that we have on this planet to try to make do collective projects that benefit all. Um, So I really appreciate that, not sacrifice, but the choice to dedicate your time and to, to be committed in that way. Because there's another thing, there's works of art. And I also believe that each life is a work of art. Uh, and also Bongiwei, your work as an activist uh, and an environmentalist is, is also a work of art. Tell us about your memories of this natural world and what you love.
3: Okay, so um, for me, to be honest, um, when I think about how I ended up in this career, I actually started off as a biochemist, like this, studying towards a profession um, towards biochemistry. And I was in the profession or studying towards the profession for more than five years. <laughs> um, but I eventually decided I wasn't happy, and I, it took a bit of convincing from my parents that you know I needed to make a, a career switch. And I, I, I remember watching the news a couple of years ago, very, very long, <laughs> but um, climate change was becoming a huge uh, issue and it was becoming something well-publicized. And I decided that I wanted to change careers and that was something that I was going to do. So then I did my MPhil in Environmental Management with Stellenbosch University. And when I got there, um, something that really struck me um, was that um, he actually said, or well, one of my professors, he actually said that a lot of people think environmentalists are just a bunch of greenies, but in fact, people are the ones who conceptualize environmental problems. So it's actually a very much uh, human related issue um, despite what people think. And I am a very passionate person about uh, people I'm passionate about people and um, this is also why I think I'm you know really well suited to where I'm working now because Earth Life Africa really appeals to the injustices um, especially the environmental injustices that are really being inflicted on people and that is something I'm extremely passionate about and yeah I want to continue the struggle and uh, I see myself being in this career for a very long time (laughs) and um Yes, I, I, I'm passionate about people, I'm passionate about the world, and I can only think about my childhood as being like these really uh, great memories that I have of me being out in nature and seeing more ladybirds, which of course now I don't see much of. I think that's perhaps <laughs> one little insect I don't see, whereas in my, in my uh, time as a child, I used to see them all the time, and I used to love them. But yeah, that's about it. Thank you. <laughs>
1: uh, that that is beautiful. Um, and uh, yes, we certainly need more, more people like you in committing their their life to it. As you say, it is about. It's not green versus humans versus. It's not a, It's not that. It's the place we live in, isn't it? Uh, it's our home. Yes, I know. about the ladybirds, I I I'm hardly seeing. Absolutely. Them. Yes, but so many. But in, in South Africa, I mean, there are certain uh, so many endangered species, uh, and such a beautiful country, and it must make you sad. But yeah. you know, what with all the natural beauty there, and to to see, uh, in a way, thrown away by people who would would not respect, you know, what the the, the beautiful home you have.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it's very sad, you know, um, and to be, you know, to be frank and very honest. All these, uh, most of the environmental uh, problems are actually orchestrated in areas where uh, Black people are perceived as ignorant, you know, and and, and especially in the rural uh, areas. And like right now, there is a program which government is proposing, they call it, there's a a program called Special Economic Zone. Uh, It's a metallurgical Musina special economic zone. Musina Makado is the the northern area of Johannesburg uh, in Limpopo province, uh, where um, there's a a mega coal project that is actually proposed. And that area is earmarked for that project to take place. And if you go that area in Limpopo, these are areas which are not really far from the Kruger National Park. I'm sure you have heard about it. And the area is surrounded by uh, you know, the natural vegetation like your pop-up trees which uh, historically they've got a lot of benefits for the local communities. You know, Those trees and, and the vegetation around is actually used as medicinal, medicinal plantations for local communities and, and also to perform some rituals and as you all know the communities are very very much spiritual people and, um, and, and and there's a lot of relig- uh, religious benefits uh, and history of uh, 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 which they've got a lot of benefits uh, from that tree from those trees And apart from that the area is actually also very dry and and, and, and and because of the you know the global warming it's only now recently that we've got uh, you know for the past few weeks I think we've, we've had uh, rain, in South Africa and, and, and to a certain extent, there was also floods in, in, in our neighborhood countries. But in most cases, those uh, the northern region of our country is very, very dry and, and there's no water at all. So this project is a mega project which is expected to be to be built and, and in that particular area. And the local communities um sadly in in, in 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 that area, people are not in are not really informed about this kind of development and, and the public participation meetings are poorly attended. And a lot of people don't know anything, you know. So, but the name of job creation, it's something that goes first, you know, that people are being promised jobs out of such development and people, some people easily endorse such programs, not knowing that, you know, eventually there are heritage sites are also earmarked to be removed and and the graves being exhumed so that this kind of projects can actually take place at the later stage you find that local communities and people are, are kind of uh, you know disturbed uh, due to the development and the choices uh, which they made uh, unwittingly you know so it's very very sad
1: yes I I would like to see the if you would like to share some photographs or there's some video of it and naturally your your visual art, too, so people can uh, really understand, um, you know, the changes that are taking place, the things that they can, you know, whether it's petitioning, whether it's, you know, just working collectively to to, to fight against and push uh, back um, these climate crisis, uh, this uh, industrial development in the wrong direction, and so many things. Um, It's kind of hard to summarize everything that um, Earth Life Mm -hmm. Africa does. And i so sorry that also uh, Makoma Lekalakala wasn't part of the conversation, although she helped set it up. We should say that, uh, I'm not sure if it was the Earth Life Africa received the prize or herself, Received the Goldman Environmental Prize, um, but uh, I'm sure she has so much to say. Having been a part of Earth Life from the beginning,
2: yeah, actually, uh, she she received the, the the honor from the prize uh, winning, but she she always uh, regarded it as a, an effort which comes from all of us, you know. So, but she's she, even though she's a recipient. So um, even the the trophy from the Goldman Prize, she's actually keeping it at the office in her office uh, because she she truly believes that it's a collective effort. It's not it's not only her her effort, you know. So she's she's very a selflessness person. So very very kind. But, um, that actually came as an inspiration to, to, to all of us at the office, you know. Um, that uh, for for her seeing her you know uh, bringing that trophy and 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 and, and refi- receiving that highest accolade you know it came v- really as a as a inspiration and most of us including uh, young activists uh, are actually looking forward to 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 that and you know uh, using it as a motivation uh, which enhances the activism on the ground you know so yeah i from the office and everyone, I think we 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 were very much inspired by her. You know, uh, uh, receiving that kind of an award. We know it's it's uh, it's that space. It's 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 highly recognized space, and for the work that she did, we also truly believe that it's it's something that is well deserved uh, for to be received by somebody like her.
1: Well, certainly, she's a great teacher, and the other members of Earth Life Africa are great teachers and mentors for, for all of us who, who try to, to do our best in order to um, preserve the planet for future generations. So I would like to thank you, um, Ulrich Steenkamp, Bongiwe Matsoa, Tabo Subeko, Earth Life Africa, uh, for your important contributions and all you do to protect the environment and bring about environmental justice and create a better quality of life for future generations. Thank you for adding your voice to the One Planet podcast.
2: Thank you very much and thank you for having us. Thank you to the listeners.
1: Again, Absolutely, Thank you
3: very much, much appreciated.
0: One Planet podcast is produced by The Creative Process. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interviews producer on this podcast was Corey Donnelly. The digital media coordinator is Hannah Story Brown, and the theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be a part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.